Hear the word of the Lord. It's Jesus speaking in Matthew 25, starting in 31. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these Brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you here this morning. You decided to not brave Hurricane Earl and go back to that whatever football game, I guess. Or uh, you're not up in the mountains freezing this morning. I'm glad you're here with us, fellowshipping and seeking the Lord together. Let me pray and we'll dig into the Word together. Lord, as we look at this challenging passage today, may your Spirit guide my words And may your spirit open each of our hearts to hear what you have for us today. Lord, speak, O Lord, into our hearts that we might be the people you've called us to be 
in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a song that came out a few years back. Very interesting. It's by the group Cake, whom I am not recommending to you. But the chorus of the song is this. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. And they keep repeating that as the chorus. And it's kind of intriguing to me. I mean, here's a secular group, and they have this interesting chorus that obviously keys off this parable that Cynthia just read to us that we're studying this morning about the separation of the sheep and the goats. And so I did a little research on the lyrics of this song, and here's some of the verses just for us to think about. I don't want to go to Sunset Strip. I don't want to feel the emptiness. Old marquees with stupid band names. I don't want to go to Sunset Strip. Another verse. I'm not going to smile today. I'm not going to laugh. You're out living it up today. I've got dues to pay. When the gravedigger puts on the forceps, the stonemason does all the work, the barber can give you a haircut, the carpenter can take you out to lunch, etc. And then the chorus, sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell, sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. As I think about those verses, I, I hear a cry of the lyricist who wrote those. A cry that says, you know, I've tried life, what life has to offer, and there's something missing. I, I'm left with an emptiness in my soul and a sense that somehow, somewhere, someday, I will be held accountable for how I've lived. I've got dues to pay, he says. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. I don't think he understands what that's all about, but I think all of us human beings have that sense that what I do does somehow matter. We may try to avoid thinking about it. We may try to avoid any sense that someday there's going to be judgment. But I think deep down, all people, whether they're believers or not, have this sense that our deeds are somehow going to be weighed on the scale someday. That it really does matter how I live that we really are accountable somehow to God. Well, this parable that Jesus tells is one that I think gives us great insight into that and what that's all about as he ends his last discourse of the book of Matthew. It's kind of wild. It's kind of a wild parable. And as you read it just superficially, a lot of us kind of uh, are taken back because our theology says, hey, the only ticket I have into heaven is Jesus' death. We just sang about that, right? Only the blood. Only the blood. That's all I can appeal to. Jesus died for me and I put my faith in him. And, and yet this parable seems to say, hey, what's going to separate us as either sheep or goats is how well we've loved the needy around us. So it is a challenging parable and it sort of challenges us in your face theologically, but I think it's meant to do that. Not to change our theology, but to challenge our lifestyle while we're here on earth. So let's dig into this together and see what it says. Because it's important we understand what it is saying 
and also what it is not saying. So just to remind you of the context, Jesus is three days from the cross. He's in Jerusalem. He's speaking to his disciples, giving them their final kind of words, final training. And it's interesting in the book of Matthew, as you kind of look at the big picture of the book of Matthew, Matthew gives us five discourses of Jesus, five teaching, teachings of Jesus, major teachings. And Matthew, remember who Matthew was? He was a tax gatherer, right? His other name was Levi. Tax gatherers were hated by the Jews. They were rejects of society. So he had experienced the amazing compassion of God. And so the book of Matthew really reflects that. I mean, from the very beginning, the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, if you read it carefully, it's, it's kind of strange because it includes Rahab the harlot. Bathsheba, Tamar, Mary. <laughs> All these that have been tainted somehow, rejected by society, tainted somehow it appears, and yet they are part of the godly line. And then the very first words of Jesus' first discourse are, blessed are the poor in spirit. All through his ministry, Jesus had compassion, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, compassion on the poor and needy. And so we see through this book, we see that Matthew wants us to get it. These are Jesus' last words, and as they say, last words are lasting words. Jesus' last major teaching before he went to the cross in the book of Matthew. So these are important, important words. They're words that we need to get. So what does this actually teach? Well, first of all, it teaches that there is a judgment coming, right? There is a judgment coming. Let me read those verses again, 31 through 33. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Jesus is coming back. And it's critical we understand that, that there is a day of accountability. Jesus will sit on His throne as a king and as a judge. He is coming. It will happen. People today like to kind of think, well, Jesus hasn't done anything for thousands of years. You know, does God really care? I mean, the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous, people who follow God, bad things happen to them and they get cancer and struggle and get rejected. So come on, it's, does it really matter how we live? Why not just eat, drink and be merry? Well, Jesus is saying, no, I am coming back. And it will be a glorious day when I bring all my angels with me. And when we stand before him, and notice what it says, all the nations will stand before him. We will all stand before him. Believers, unbelievers, we will stand before that glorious throne. And it will be amazing as our eyes are opened to reality. So we need to be prepared to face him, I think, is the encouragement to us, the Father has given all judgment, all authority into Jesus' hands, and so we need to be ready for that. I think this is described in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their 
deeds. Seems to be reflected in this parable. All nations, every one of us, will stand before him in that day, no matter who we are. And he says that he will separate them from one from another. The shepherd, like the shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, a shepherd in those days would feed his sheep and his goats together, gather his flocks, but at night he would separate them because goats don't have as heavy a coat. They like to be warm at night, and so he'd gather them into a cave, gather them all together. The sheep could be outdoors because they have a thicker coat, and that's when the separation would happen. That seems to be what Jesus is referring to here, that there's this separation. All of mankind will be divided into two categories, sheep and goats. Now, our relativistic world kind of struggles with that. Well, wait a minute, you know, we think, how can you be so judgmental? (laughs) How can you divide people like that? And we think if there's any division, you know, there's many, many, many divisions. There's really good people and pretty good people and sort of good people and neutral people and kind of bad people. And, you know, we, I mean, we make all our categories ourselves. We've got all kinds of categories. But from God's point of view, there's only two. Sheep and goats. That's it. We either get to spend eternity with him or apart from him. And as we know theologically, that's the key to the separation. Whether we've come to know him on earth or not. You see, he loves us enough that he gives us lots of opportunity. And that's why he has delayed judgment, we are told. is because he wants to give everybody ample opportunity to give their lives to Christ, to come to know Him here on earth. But if we choose not to come to know Him, then eternity will simply be giving us our choice. No, I don't want to come to know you. People who do that are goats and will spend eternity separated from Him. People who come to know Him will spend eternity with him. That's clearly, theologically, the separation of the Scriptures. Okay? He gives us our choice. We're one or the other. There's only two categories of humanity. Period. That's it. So we need to kind of make sure that we're sheep, right? I mean, I want to be a sheep. I want to spend eternity with him. So let's look at this parable, because this parable would suggest, again, it's salvation by works, somehow, and it's been misused that way, that somehow it all depends on what we do, and if we're really caring for the poor, and if we don't, then we aren't going to make it to heaven, no matter whether we've accepted Jesus or not. That's the way some have taken this, but I think that's a misunderstanding. Now, Jesus is stating this in a way that's sort of shocking for us, but he's not saying that's the basis of judgment. You see, We know from the scriptures everywhere else and from our theology that the only basis by which we get into heaven is faith in Christ. It's what he's done for us. Like we just sang, it's his blood. It's his death. So we know that theologically. So that's absolutely true. But what is this passage really saying then? Because people have misused this passage. They have used it to say, all God cares about is a social gospel whether you're caring for the poor or not. That's all. It doesn't even matter if you have a relationship with God. It just matters if you are out loving, caring for the marginalized of society, the needy of society, the poor, 
the destitute, the abused, etc. So there's a problem with that, though, because it contradicts not only the rest of Scripture, but I believe it contradicts this passage as well. And here's why I think so. Notice verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice what he says there. These are the ones who are sheep. These are the ones who get into heaven who inherit the kingdom that's been prepared. It's those who are blessed of my father. Now there's a couple different words for blessed in the scriptures. Ones like earlier in Matthew, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's different than here. And for those of you who took summer Greek, there's a few of you in here I know. (laughs) This word for blessed is a perfect participle. It means something that happened in the past, before all this, with continuing results. In other words, what he's saying is that, come you who in the past received the blessing of a relationship with God. And that's had results in your life. Come, you who have been blessed by my Father, now receive your inheritance. How do we get into heaven? It's, it's receiving the blessing, the gift of life that he offers us. That is the basis for us getting into heaven, even in this parable. Okay? Does that make sense? hope so. And so what that means is that sheep are fundamentally different than goats because they have his life in them. That's the difference. You either have received the blessing and have Jesus living in you, have his life in you, or not. That is the basis for judgment. And then what he's saying then, I think in this parable, if you've been blessed, the evidence the evidence that the life of Christ is in you is that you have a compassion for the needy. It's your compassion for the needy is not what saves you, but it's the evidence that you have been saved. Understand? That's what he's saying here, I believe. That it's the evidence. If Christ's life is in you because he has such a heart of compassion that we cannot help if he's in us living a life of caring for those who are marginalized and needy and poor around us, and among us. In other words, compassion for the poor is not how we get, get saved, but it's the evidence that we are saved already. I think this is reflected down in verse 41, too, where he says to the goats, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the perfect middle participle. Notice it doesn't say as in the other one, blessed by God. It doesn't say cursed by God. It's, it's what they've chosen. It's what they've chosen in cursing their own lives, choosing a life apart from God. And the result is they aren't living lives of compassion where he, Jesus, lives his life through us. And something else you, will, you note as you read this parable carefully is that he says, really, he says, it's not just caring for any poor, but it's how you care for Jesus, how you respond to Jesus, right? Because you visited me. You fed me. Ultimately, what he's saying is he says the key is how you are responding in your relationship to Jesus and how you are caring for him in 
the poor. Now, this is kind of a mystery, isn't it? How is it when I help somebody on a street corner or help somebody who's poor, how is it that I'm helping Jesus? Well, I like the way that Mother Teresa put it, who gave her life on the streets of Calcutta for 45 years, helping those who were dying on the streets of terrible diseases and leprosy and all kinds of things, provided a place where they were loved and cared for in their dying days. Here's what she says about those people she cared for. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. There's a mystery about that, isn't it? That when we love someone who's needy, we are loving Jesus. How is that? How is Jesus in the poor? Let me just suggest some ways that come to my mind. I think one way is that every human being is created in the image of God. In that sense, everyone, whether they're believers or not, reflects Him in some way. So that when we care for someone who's broken or lost or hurting, they still carry the reflection of Jesus in them. And so, as one commentator put it, Clyde Snodgrass says, in dealing with someone made in God's image, we are dealing with God Himself. Secondly, I think we get a picture of how Jesus is in the poor when we think about the fact that God throughout the Bible demonstrates a deep compassion towards the poor. All the way through the scriptures, God has a deep care for the widows, the orphans, the lonely, the hurting, the broken. So living a life of compassion towards these people is living a life that expresses God's heart to others around us. To the least of these, as Jesus says. Not the most of these. You know, the most of these are those people who we as humans tend to honor. Those who are the celebrities, who are really powerfully gifted, who have incredible wealth, who, you know, they're the most of these. But Jesus clearly says, as my followers, have my heart for the least of these. Those who don't have the resources to survive who don't have the ability to make good choices, who are broken and hurting. This is who I'm calling you to give your life for. And I think we see Jesus reflected in the poor when we think about how he personally throughout his ministry identifies with the needy. Think about Jesus, how he chose to come. He left his throne of glory. He was seated with the with his Father in heaven, and he emptied himself, left all that, became a human being, but just not an everyday human being. How did he choose to be born? Into a family of poverty? In a cave? A stable? Who did he choose to first have the announcement made to that he, the Messiah had come? Shepherds. Who were considered kind of the rejects of society. I mean, if you couldn't do anything else, I guess you can be a shepherd and follow sheep around all day. They were considered, considered smelly and, you know, you didn't want to be around shepherds. That's who the announcement came to. Who did Jesus identify all during his ministry with? Tax gatherers, sinners, the rejects of society. That's who he chose to identify with. And who did he choose to identify with in his death? He became the lowest of the low, a common criminal 
crucified on a cross between two common criminals. So when you think about Jesus' ministry, you begin to see that, wow, all his life he identified with the broken, with the needy, with the marginalized, with those who have no resources for life, including criminals. That should encourage us to think, you know, when I care for someone who's really needy, I'm caring for Jesus himself because that's who he chose to identify with. So what is Jesus saying in this parable then? Well, he's not saying that it's your good works who get you, that get you into heaven. Okay? If that were true, then the other criminal on the cross, you know, next to him who, who said, Remember me, Jesus? And Jesus said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, wait a minute. Have you helped a poor person today? Uh, if you haven't, sorry. Jeez, uh, I wanted to let you into heaven, but not going to happen. No, he's not saying that, is he? No, but what he is saying, that if the life of God is in you, you've received the blessing that God offers you. You put your faith in Christ and his death for you, and Jesus has indwelt you. You've received the Holy Spirit and you've been forgiven. Then what he is saying is one of the clearest evidences that the life of God is in you will be having a heart of compassion for the needy. For the hurting. Now, this is challenging, isn't it? Because it challenges us in our modern world. We tend to be, you know, it's easy to live our Christian life where it's all about us. And it's kind of this self-actualization, self-improvement plan. So I'm focused on making myself better. And, and Jesus is challenging all that. And, you know, I've fallen into that attitude. And, but I see him challenging that for all of us to say, no, the life, my life in you will give you a heart of compassion for the needy around you. That's what the life of Christ in you will do. But that kind of challenges us again to think about, okay, what does that look like for us <laughs> in 21st century America? How, what does it mean for us to have a heart of compassion for the needy around us? What does it look like for us? I, I want to make one more exegetical note, just question... Sometimes the question is raised, who really are the needy he's talking about? Is he talking about just Christians or anybody who's needy? Verse 40 says this, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Now some take that to say, well, when Jesus is talking about brothers, he's talking about only believers. Well, the word brothers, Jesus uses the word brothers three different ways through the book of Matthew. One, he uses it to describe uh, anybody in your life, Christian or non-Christian, but someone who's somehow near to you physically. Or it can be literally believers, brothers in Christ. Or it can be literally brothers and sisters, blood brothers. So the question you have to say, Jesus uses them all three ways. Which way is he using it? in this parable. And I think for a number of reasons he's describing brothers as his identification with everyone who's poor and needy, whether they're believers or not. And part of it is I just can't see Jesus saying, okay, go to that person on the street corner who's needy and hurting and find out if they're a believer first and if they're not, then don't help them. 
He's not saying that. He wants us to live a heart of compassion towards all needy people. So I think he's saying, I identify with anyone who's hurting because that's who I am in my heart. I have a compassion on anybody who's hurting. So how do we as Christians love the poor and needy practically? It helps to think about the early church. The early church immediately, you see it in the book of Acts, chapter 4, where it says they sold fields, they cared for one another so that there, there was not a needy person among them. So you see this heart of compassion coming out. And as you read church history, you find that within not very many years, the church had begun to be more organized about caring for the poor. And they developed what they called hospitals. Okay, the first hospitals. But the hospitals they talk about were a variety of different kinds. They had hospitals, for example, that were, yes, to help care for the sick. But they also had what they called hospitals that were storehouses of food where the poor could come like a soup kitchen and be fed regularly when they didn't have food. They also had hospitals, as they called them, that were for the elderly who didn't have family to take care, for, care of them and so they could come and be taken care of. They also had hospitals for orphans, really the first orphanages. And all these developed early on because they had this sense of caring for the world around them, a heart of compassion that was coming out as Jesus loved other people through them. One of the most interesting stories, I think, was the emperor Julian, who was an emperor around 360 A.D., and this guy, uh, if you recall your church history, the Emperor Constantine had made the Roman Empire Christian. He declared, hey, we're a Christian empire. Well, Julian was one of his descendants a few years later. And he said, you know what? I don't want to be a Christian empire. <laughs> I want to go back to the worship of Roman gods and Greek gods and goddesses. And so we, I hate Christianity. I don't want anything to do with them. And so we are going to promote paganism. That's what he called it. The pagan temples and, and pagan religion. So he began to do that. But as he did so, he was very frustrated with the Christians. Let me read a couple quotes from him. He says this, While our pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans, that was their name for Christians, his name for Christians, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. In other words, people are believing in Christ now because of these good deeds they're doing. Darn it. <laughs> See their love feasts and their tables spread for the poor. Such practice is common among them and causes a contempt for our gods. Those terrible Christians... He says this as well. It's disgraceful that the impious Galileans, again the Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. <laughs> that was the reputation of the early church. They were doing what they could to care for the needy and poor around them, whether they were believers or not. So how about us? How do we live a life of compassion today? Here, <laughs> where we live. Well, first of all, and I think most important, is we need to get to know Jesus better. Because how are we going to have his heart for others if we don't know him well? So 
my exhortation to all of us is, oh, go deep with God. Get to know Jesus better so that you can have his heart of compassion. Secondly, ask God to love others through you. Lord, let your life flow in a way. Give me your heart of compassion that I might care for those who are needy around me. Then third, step out. As God gives you opportunities, step out. Now, it's interesting. We had our staff meeting this week and Laura and Nick Armstrong were there and they were talking about something very interesting. They said, you know... We live in Indonesia. There's beggars everywhere on the streets. They come up, they're begging. You know, it's part of their whole culture. But they said it's been interesting just being gone these last two years since the reception has ha- recession has happened and they've come back to the U.S. now that there are people on street corners everywhere here now begging for food, begging for money. And I don't know if, if you're like me, but, you know, the, my tendency is like, Okay, don't look over there. Just keep looking straight ahead. I don't I feel a little embarrassed, but you know, and or we don't we don't, we don't know what to do. Well, I've learned a lot from my wife about this. See, she likes to go into like um, the one standing at the corner of Winco where we shop a lot. She likes to go in and buy a bag of food and then bring it to him. Or maybe a Winco gift card and hand it to them. Now, could they misuse it, you know, if they're addicted to alcohol or something? And yeah, yeah, that's a risk. But uh, you're helping them in kind. You're giving them something substantial. And I've learned from her. So now what I like to do is, you know, if I have opportunity to go up and just sit with them and talk to them (laughs) and hear their story. And it's amazing what you'll hear a lot of times. And I've found that most of them are people just like you and me, a lot of construction workers who are trying to support their family, and the construction trade, of course, has gone down the tubes, and so they can't provide for their families, and they don't know what else to do. These are good-hearted people that are broken and needy, and we have the opportunity to treat them like we would treat Christ if he were standing right there. That's just one example There's lots of ministries that we can get involved in to reach out to the needy. We can get involved in outreach to refugees, Boise Rescue Mission. There are opportunities in the King's Garden. I love that ministry. They raise lots of produce. Thank you for those of you who have been involved in that. And it gets handed out to refugees and needy who come. And if they don't come, then we take it places to people who can use it to meet needs. There's soup kitchens. There's all kinds of opportunities around. But, you know, in our culture, we don't have as many people who are desperately needy as most cultures, it appears. But again, I like what Mother Teresa said. Again, who gave her life for the poor and destitute, but here's what she says. Being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody... I think that is a much greater hunger, a much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat. You see, we have a lot of emotionally destitute people around us. There are a lot of elderly folks that are shut-ins, that are locked up, can't get out, and they have nobody to come visit them, or in care centers or whatever. 
You know, it's interesting to go to a care center. You ought to try this sometime. And just walk in and say, who hasn't had a visit for a long time? You'll find that there's a lot of people who never get visited. And you can be Christ to them. Mother Teresa also says this, one of the greatest diseases is to be nobody to anybody. There's people who need us to share the love of Christ. There's disabled people in our culture. There's mentally challenged people. There's the elderly shut-ins, etc. There are many lonely and hurting people on your block that as you get to know them, your heart of compassion, Christ will love them through you. That's his plan. And just one other way we can love people, I think, the needy, the destitute in our culture today. It's kind of an interesting time in our world that like the floods in Pakistan, millions have been displaced. We're not there. We're far away. But really, for the first time in history, we can, you know, we can give and we can minister to those people from here. You can give on your phone. You can text something and give $10 to the Red Cross to help in Pakistan. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we can give to people far away as well, as well as those who are nearby, the brothers around us, the least of these. Now, we are to use wisdom, right? I mean, you just don't want to give to somebody who's going to misuse it totally and it's just going to feed their addiction. I agree. Okay, you want to give to reputable, good organizations. You want to do your best to give in kind, not just give money to people. You know, there's lots of things that are involved in being wise in how you give. But don't don't let that keep you from giving. As Laura Armstrong said in our staff meeting this week, she said, if you're going to err, err on the side of compassion. If you're going to err, err on the side of compassion. It's better to be used in your giving than not to give at all. I just want to share a story about Judy. Somebody I met 18 years ago. Judy was a woman who was very needy, a lot of emotional needs, several mental diagnoses that uh, I couldn't even list them all for you on medication, etc., but emotionally a really hurting person. And I helped her through a tough time, and then I moved away. She continued to live in Nevada. I lived here, moved here 17 years ago. But Judy would call me over those 17 years, Sometimes, several times a day. She would be desperate. Sometimes she'd be suicidal. Sometimes she'd just be happy and want to share with me. And she called me her best friend in the world. To be honest, a lot of times, I didn't want to talk to her. Not Judy again. One time she decided to send me a gift. She sent me a box of clothes that she'd collected. She just wanted to bless me with it. Out of about 10 items, I think one fit me. But you know what? It didn't matter. Over time, I began to see Jesus more and more in her. As he, he gave me more of a heart of compassion for her. And she ministered to me in a lot of ways. I'm really sad to say 
that this last spring she finally couldn't take it anymore. She took a gun and killed herself. And I lost a friend. I didn't always treat her great. That's my issue, but I lost a friend. And I honestly can say, in the loss of Judy, there's somehow less of Jesus in my life. Now, you know, Jesus is all there, etc. I understand that, but, but there's something missing because Judy is no longer in my life. The least of these. Who are the least of these in your life? That God's saying, express my heart of compassion. Let me love them through you and you will be loving me, Jesus says. As you care for the least of these in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for challenging us. We admit we're often selfish and we think more about us than others. Open our eyes to the least of these around us and may we love you by loving them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.